That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me! But Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. 
As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. It's quite a couple of stories, huh? In living color. My name's Scott, and my wife Hannah and I attended here for some time now, and uh, we direct a ministry called Straight Ahead Ministries in Juvenile Prisons, and uh, Hannah was a couple of weeks ago speaking, so I hope you don't have your expectations too high for me, but in watching that depiction on the screen, you know, I imagine it was in certain ways, and others who make a movie of uh, the scripture imagine it other ways, but I had never really imagined Jesus, you know, that angry at the storm. I just thought it would be more like, oh, peace, be still, and just nice and calm. But it is the same word, epitomio, that's used a half a dozen other times in Mark's gospel of casting out demons. And when the storm just, and the, and the waves stop immediately, you know there's a spiritual dimension behind the whole thing, it's not simply just a, a, you know, a weather report that brought it on. And there's a number of other things too, and I'd encourage you to go to page 710, because what was just depicted is exactly as it is in the translation in the pew. But there are many other things that were going on that were kind of a first here. One is, Jesus is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the the Gentile side, the eastern side. And as far as we can tell from the Gospels, this is his first trip over there with these people. And maybe likely his disciples' first time over too, because this was, as you could see when you got there, this was really foreign land. It wasn't a place that they would have wandered into very much. Unclean everything, pigs and Gentiles and tombs and demons and you know, it was quite, a, quite a, a trip. The other thing is, it's the first time that he's actually on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. You know, he goes alongside the, the sea for most of everything up until this, Mark 1 through 4. And I guess in some ways, this might be the home territory of at least four of these disciples, Peter and John and, and Andrew and, and, uh, um, and James. They were familiar with boating, fishing. And Jesus, he's just a carpenter. So I, I can imagine them saying, hey, Jesus, just lay down here. here. Here's a cushion. You relax. We got this one. And they did until they didn't. And when that storm came up, you know, it's, it's interesting how long it seems to take them before they ever think you know, that a carpenter, to wake him up even, some translations say it was, the boat was nearly full of water. And if you've ever been on a boat and it starts to take on water, that's, that's a bad news right there. And then they wake him up and, uh, you know, and, and ask this question, don't you care if we drown? An angry uh, statement. Reminds me a, a bit of... Um, story I've heard of Hannah's mother, Minnie, who was the second missionary sent into Europe from Child Evangelism Fellowship 71 years ago. 
and was on a ship across to Europe, and uh, there were 12 missionaries amongst many other people that were on the boat, and they came upon a storm. And it was one of those that, you know, I've been on a cruise ship where there was a storm and I had to miss lobster dinner that night. It was, you know, it was inconvenient. But it wasn't like this one was where the people did gather, the missionaries and several other Christians, and pray. And then it continued to get worse so that, as Hannah's mother would tell it, she was there with her mother going over to that mission field. And they just embraced each other and said, we'll see you on the other side. They knew this was it. And then something happened. You know, it stilled. And the captain came down and he met with the whole crew and he said, you know, I'm not a God-fearing man, but I will tell you that what I saw it was completely unexplainable. We were down deep and there was a wave that was far over us ready to come down. He said, I saw a giant hand come down from the sky and pull us up out of there. And he said, I just want to, he was shaking, I just want to thank you, those who prayed. And I can imagine him saying, who is this God that even the winds and the storms obey him? And I don't know if it was the devil who sent such a storm with 12 missionaries at stake here, or if it was just something in the clouds, it doesn't really matter. But God did spare those lives. But I can imagine the others who were there too and saw what could not be explained. And even that captain, who is this God that even the waves and the storm would obey him? And that was a new thing for these disciples too. They'd seen Jesus do many things, but they hadn't seen him do nature miracles at this point. That was their question as they woke him up. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And it's interesting that in these short four verses, there's four questions that arise. The first one is, doesn't sound like much of a question. Don't you care that we're going to drown? It's sort of like, didn't you hear what I said? <laughs> More of a statement than a question. And then Jesus responds with a couple of questions. Why are you so afraid? And do you still have no faith? And then they come back. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? A lot more questions than answers in this passage, isn't there? And it's not standalone to Mark. Matter of fact, if you look in the Gospels, Jesus himself asks 307 questions. He's always asking questions. Seems to be a key element of how he teaches. And not only that, he's asked in the Gospels 183 different questions. And some of them are trick questions. Uh, don't you know you're not to heal on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees are asking to try to trick him. And probably why he only answers three of those directly. He often asks with another question. Well, who do you say that I am? What do you want me to do for you? Do you want to be well? Do you love me? As he asked Peter after denying him three times. And so maybe I take note of that. What's the purpose of all these questions? It seems like, you know, these two... Uh, why are you so afraid? 
Don't you still believe? They seem like sort of shaming accusations, but not really. Opportunities to, to really sit with the question. And I invite you as you read the Gospels, just to every time there's a question, just to stop for a bit and allow the question to read you. It was the opportunity for these disciples to say, wow, maybe we're not so much on the good side and the Pharisees are on the bad side. We didn't believe either. Or what is it that I'm so afraid of? When he asks the father of a demon-possessed child a couple of chapters later, do you believe? He says, oh Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Well, that's something that Jesus would love to answer, isn't it? Well, I don't know if you've noticed also in this book of Mark as we've been here for these last six weeks, it's pretty fast-paced and moving. And I've been reading along in the parallel Mark and, uh, Matthew and Luke accounts. And, and, you know, we're only in chapter 4 here, and they're already in like chapter 8 and 9. And, you know, the whole Beatitudes was in the Luke and, and Matthew account, and Mark doesn't even deal with it. He's just like on to the next thing, action. And part of that is just understanding who Mark writes to. He writes to a specific primary audience, which is the Romans. And the Romans are, you know, they're in charge, so they're concerned with power a lot, and they're fast-paced, and it's, you know, people who are in charge are pretty aware of it. And, and, and Mark writes to them specifically, differently than Matthew, who writes to the Jews. And, and their concern is, well, how does this fit in with all these other prophecies and so forth and and so when jesus says well you heard it said you're not to kill but i say if you look at someone with anger in your heart you've already committed murder and he ties it all back like that they're not inconsistent with each other but there's a different audience and then luke he writes mostly to the greeks and and you know the greeks are philosophical and they're very logical and and they think very systematically and and so a doctor Luke would make sense that he would you know be able to write to that audience and and John he really writes primarily to to still us the church or the community of believers in that day and so he's concerned with well how do we relate to each other how do we love one another and John's gospel actually has the word love in it 39 times Mark it's only like eight the most of all the New Testament books, John has love, followed by 2 John, where it occurs 27 times, five short chapters, or five short yeah, chapters in, in 1 John. And so they're different contexts. It's something for us to be aware of as we're trying to think missiologically and how we bring the gospel and how the gospel is, is a fuller than maybe to my own primary context of how I'm used to hearing it. 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul says, We have not been given a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. It's really three different areas, isn't it? Love, you could say, well, John's really focused on that. Power, Mark, a sound mind, Matthew, Luke. Any of those by themselves misses the fullness of God's message. 
Love without power and without wisdom is, is just do, doing good, social gospel kind of stuff. Power without love and without wisdom is fanaticism. And a sound mind and wisdom without power and without love is having a form of godliness but denying its power. And it's why we need each other, especially people who are not so much like us, right? To, to be able to, to, to really see even more of, of the gospel. And my son, when he was studying in college to be in cross-cultural missions, one of their textbooks was this, the 3D gospel, the three-dimensional gospel. And it really struck with me because he looks at... Uh, Around the world, three kind of different worldview cultures. And one is the guilt-innocent culture, which is really those in North America who are raised here in Western Europe. We tend to see things very individualistic, don't we? Uh, we read the Bible as though it's just all about me, not as, as a whole people group. And so it's not a surprise that, you know... Um, uh, even though we're only 15% of the population, um, we have developed a way of sharing the gospel that's very individual. God is the judge, and Jesus, you know, we're, we're brought before and pronounced guilty, and Jesus says, I'll take the penalty. It's very legal. Luther and Calvin were lawyers, and it's, it's, it is true, but it's not the only way that culture and understanding of even in the narratives of the, of the Gospels fill out the whole Gospel. The four spiritual laws, the Romans road. And according to this author, this way of evangelizing has been uh, about 90%, you know, people have heard that message in that context. But what about the, the shame-honor part of the world? 65% of the world, as Rena was talking about, the 1040 window, Asia, Middle East, Northern Africa. And some of you have been raised in a shame-honor culture. And it's very different, isn't it? Because you would never bring shame upon your family. And the Gospel speaks into this realm as well. The jailer and his whole family came to Christ. I've heard stories of, of tribes and communities where when the leader comes, everybody else follows. I remember uh, with a, a kid I worked with a long time in jail who was uh, uh, Puerto Rican and um, you know, made his individual profession of faith and all, and then when he went back, committed a worse crime than he'd ever done. And I was like, well, I thought, you know, and here, you know, his family is three generations in a gang, and to, to deface his family, to shame his family, to go against that, that, would, that would, that's like a higher value almost than anything individually I would choose. And I just didn't understand that. And the gospel speaks into that. But we have not largely developed an evangelistic strategy for shame on our culture, though it's 65% of the world. It's probably why, as Rena said, that uh, it's so unreached. And then there's the fear, power culture, more Caribbean, uh, sub-Sahara Africa, tribal, and Pentecostalism speaks to, you know, people who are really, the Bible, the, the, the devil's not a metaphorical uh, idea. 
It's really the fight between good and evil and God and the devil. And it's, it's a different presentation where people live in that mindset. Some of you, that's your familiarity as well. When David was in Honduras and with the YWAM, uh, after going through their discipleship training school, and, and I was hearing the things that were happening, I said, well, that just doesn't happen, you know, in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I can just imagine one of the stories, there's 19 and 20-year-old kids that are in Honduras, and there, as you go in to pray for people, and this woman came up who was blind and pray for me. And they, okay, we prayed for her. Pray again, she says. It's not clear, and they continue to. And, and, and this woman who was blind received her sight in Honduras, and she was crippled in her feet and was healed. And I go, wow, that's really different. Why wouldn't that just happen here in the same way? And so there's a point that the gospel is powerful and speaks into all these different realms. When Lou shared a couple of weeks ago from Mark chapter 3, just consider the critique that the Pharisees had to Jesus around these three very dimensions. The first one, what did he say? The Pharisees, you're breaking the law by healing on the Sabbath. Well, where does, where does that fit? It's a very individualistic law and order. And what does he say? Is it lawful to save or to kill? And then they come back. Hey, your family's over here and you're dissing them. You're disrespecting them. You're shaming them. You're not giving them a place. And he says, well, who are my family? Those who do the will of God are my mother or my brothers, my sister. And then they come back. He's casting out demons. Surely he's the prince of demons. And he says, oh, who can... What kingdom can stand divided against itself? The point is the gospel in its fullness speaks to all of these. And in our culture around us today, we have people who are from all of these. It might be interesting today, take this little free assessment test, the culture test. It's 15 questions or 20 questions takes about five minutes, and it'll just tell you, well, you know, like, if you're like me, you probably fit into this guilt-innocent shame, guilt-innocent um, uh, mindset. The gospel's true, how we present it from there. But when I did it with our staff some years ago, people who were raised in this culture, sort of middle-class, suburban, uh, we all scored high in that one, but most of our staff have not been raised that way. They've come up through jail. Many of them are urban communities or some that moved from other countries here, and they scored much higher than the other two, very low in, in this one. And if I only know how to present the gospel through one dimension, I'm going to miss a lot of people. That's why I'm grateful for Mark and what he brings. Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Paul shared from Mark chapter 1, 39 and 40, it says, Jesus came to preach, heal, and drive out demons throughout Galilee. This is where the shift comes, chapter 5. Because now he's about to do all the same things across the Sea of Galilee on the eastern side in the land of the Gentiles. And it's pretty interesting because all the same stuff he does in chapters 1 through 4 and even later on in the book of Mark, in chapters 5 through 8, 
He does the same things. He drives out demons. He heals. He calms storms. Feeds thousands of people with a few fish. And it's nothing to be overlooked because this is like, wow, out of the paradigm. Most of these Jews would have never traveled into that place. And you can imagine even as they got there, you know, the reception. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Demons and tombs and then the people drive us away after we're there. Pigs becoming possessed and going, you know, it's just like craziness. And then being kicked out. You, uh, what are these disciples thinking? You know, we got all the way over here through a fierce storm, almost drowned, and they kick us out. This was a bad mission trip. <laughs> a short-term mission gone bad. And, and I can imagine, it's like, what was this all about? Jesus, oh, do I want to keep following this guy? I don't know. He's on a wild goose chase to the nth degree, right? But he wasn't, was he? He was starting to open up. Hey, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going into this territory, and I'm going to do powerful things there that you've never seen, heard, even imagined. So that the next time they would come over, a couple chapters later, it would be in a completely different reception. Now the people are lined up to be healed. Apparently, this garrison formerly demon-possessed man, was pretty obedient. Went to the ten cities because they receive him completely different the next time. He does all the same things there that he would do on the western side of the sea. The first evangelist in Mark is actually a Gentile, formerly demon-possessed man. Peter doesn't proclaim until Mark 8, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Think about that. In John's Gospel, the first evangelist is this Samaritan woman who's a prostitute at the well. She's the first to proclaim, and an entire city comes to faith long before any of the disciples pick up the mantle and go. Well, as we close out, not to skip over the reality of this very tangible encounter Jesus has with this man who has a legion of demons. It's a military term. And it means basically 6,000. I don't know if that was exact number, but there were a lot of them. An instance that's foreign to most of us who've primarily lived our lives in this part of the world, but it's not that so much for many others of our brothers and sisters. Yesterday I was speaking at a missionary, a mission fundraising uh, dinner uh, at noon, and, and Pastor Bazile was there, who I've known now for several years, a pastor in, in Haiti, and was, it was telling about how 15 years ago he and his wife were living in in Port-au-Prince, and he was a lawyer, and God gave him a very clear vision. Go into Laogon and plant a church. Now, Laogon was the voodoo capital of the world. There were no churches in Laogon. There wasn't even any married couples in Laogon. 
wasn't really, you know, it was probably about as wacky as going over to the garrisons, these people. Unclean in every way. But he went. And he began to love on people, and he planted a church. And, and um, this thing started, one of the biggest turning points was in 2010, when there was the, the earthquake. It was so devastated. Haiti, and the, the voodoo doctor, witch doctor, who was over all of Laogon in the voodoo capital of the entire world, in, at that time was initiating his daughter Cynthia uh, to be like his uh, successor. And the earthquake hit, and she fled and ended up at Pastor Bazile and his wife's home, and they had an orphanage for girls they were running there, and she lived there, and you know, she came with a lot of baggage, a lot of demonic uh, oppression. And he prayed over her and raised her. And, and it didn't go well with the witch doctor either. He, he, put, he put out a curse on them and a death uh, uh, call for, for, for all of these. And, and God just started to, in that deep darkness, do powerful things. And, and I've been in Laogon many times now, but uh, I've never heard voodoo drums at night. I've been in other parts of Haiti where you don't sleep very well because voodoo drums go all night long. Here, you don't sleep that well either because there's roosters crowing and dogs barking. And, and then there's also people singing and praying all night. They have these all-night prayer meetings that keep you up all night if you're trying to sleep. <laughs> and they've married hundreds of couples in Laogon. And it reminds me, you know, now Cynthia... She's supported by us at Straight Ahead as a staff person who works with people coming out of prison to integrate them back into those churches. And every prisoner, every prison she goes to, people know. She's like a legend, like the demoniac. If, if she could be changed, then maybe there's hope for me. Doesn't God love to do that? Well, you know, the, the, the thing about this, both these passages is that as mighty as they are on the other side of it, they were not received well by the original audience, were they? The disciples were very upset about what was happening to them when they went out on the sea. Don't you care? We're about to drown. And then what he puts them through when they land over in this other, they're driven out after all this. And... Lo and behold, those who witness what happens to this demoniac, what do they say? They begged him and pled with him to leave. Well, 2,000 pigs worth about estimated $70,000, so there was a cost. You know, Jesus was stirring it up. And he does that. You know, if, if my idea is that somehow he's going to take away all my disruptions... I may be in for an unpleasant surprise. He created a lot more than he took away. And it leaves me with, you know, God, who really are you? And what is it that you're about? And, and how am I responding to that? Some of the same questions. What are you so afraid of? Do you have still no faith? And the other one, 
we've been wrestling through in this series, what are you now asking me to do as a result of it? Because perhaps what I think is the end goal of you working in me may not be your end goal. Almost every place that he wanders and moves into and brings his power and his spirit into, it's not received well by those who claim his name, is it? And, I, and would it be different today? So as we close, uh, I would like just take a moment and reflect on those. God, based on this, who are you? What have I missed about who you are? doesn't mean that everything I've seen is not true, but I don't see it all. And what are you asking me to step into? What are you calling me to as well? And as the worship team comes forward, just take a moment with that, and, and I'll close us in prayer.